Father, we thank you for this time to be together and pray you bless us as we uh, study the confession of faith. And we thank you for uh, Christ's building of his church these last uh, really 4,000 years since the call of Abraham. And we, we thank you for the advent of Christ and his work to save his people from their sins. And we pray you give us a better understanding of the things you have revealed to us in your word. May we all be diligent students of scripture every day to read and understand it. And we pray that you bless this time together now as we study these important things. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Okay, so let's turn back to point number 10 of chapter 1. The Westminster Confession. Actually, we're on point number 9, excuse me. So point number 9 is an important one. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Now, I want to ask, does anyone here know why they put that phrase in there, which is not manifold but one? Why they said that? Okay, historically, I remember when I took church history when I was in seminary and just studying the history of Christian thought, around the, really the middle of the 200s, like so back in like 250 AD, there was the rise of a, a school of thought in North Africa called the Alexandrian Catechetical School. And I remember taking notes on all this stuff. And these, these guys, these teachers in the church, they started suggesting that every passage of scripture has four separate meanings to it. And historically, that became known as the quadriga, that there are four meanings to every passage of the Bible. There's like the grammatical historical meaning, there's the literal meaning, there's the super duper, if you're really spiritual meaning, that only the really holy and godly can know meaning, and then there's like one other one. Other one. But there were four different meanings to every passage of scripture. The Westminster Divines, when they wrote this, they were well aware of all that stuff, that that kind of allegorizing, that, that, that was the fourth one, an allegorical interpretation. And that led to all kinds of really weird interpretations of scripture that really were kind of a hindrance to the church understanding the Bible for a long time. So they put that in, in here to say, look, if you read a passage of scripture and you don't understand it, what you need to do is go look at other passages in the Bible that address the same topic, or perhaps a little more clearly. But the meaning of that passage, there's only one meaning to it. Okay, there's not four different meanings, and there's not, there's not like what it says, and then there's some weird allegorical meaning. And to me, the, the quintessential example of that was Pope Gregory the Great, and I believe he lived in the, at the end of the 500s, early 600s. He wrote a, a commentary on the book of Job, which is just bizarre. He sees allegorical meanings under everything. He's like, yeah, Job's, Job's uh, camels, that represents heretics, and then his three daughters, those were the persons of the Trinity, and Job's wife represents the carnal nature. And you like read this going, no, that's not what that's about at all. It's about a guy who was, who was tested by God and still loved God. That's what the book's about, right? You're not supposed to look for all these weird hidden meanings under everything. And there's also schools of interpretation of, of scripture we learned about when I was in seminary. Um, one of my professors called them hypertypers, where they see types, like typological things, under everything in the Old Testament. Like every little detail of the tabernacle has some weird meaning we're supposed to try to decipher. And I remember him saying, guys, some of the tent pegs in the tabernacle were just there to hold it in place. Okay, there's not a meaning behind them. 
okay? And you can do that. People get off into these weird, like, trying to find allegorical meanings to everything. But just remember, the meaning of any given passage is only one meaning to it. And that meaning is the same for every Christian person in the whole world. Okay? So that's it's very important. It's not like there's certain schools of thought or there's certain churches or denominations that have some kind of an inside track into what Scripture means. It only means one thing. Like, for example... Um, David was king of Israel. Okay, the Old Testament says that. What does that mean? He was the king of Israel. Okay. All right. So now, you would not believe what the, school, the Quadriga school, the Alexandrian Catechological School, would have done with that statement. They would have found all kinds of weird, cool meanings behind it. But that really is a hindrance to people understanding the Bible, and we're not supposed to do that. So the meaning of any given passage of Scripture is only one. There's just one meaning to it. Okay? So it's very, very important. And if you, ever, if you ever meet people or encounter, man, this group, this particular Christian group or professing Christian group, they, they like build this huge edifice of doctrine on this one phrase in this one verse. You got to watch out for things like that. Okay. Like the Roman Catholic Church, when the angel comes to, the, to Mary and says, hail, highly favored one, they have built entire mountains of theology on that one word. It's just one Greek word that means highly favored one. They, they build the, bodily, the, the doctrine of the bodily assumption of Mary, the immaculate conception of Mary, the perpetual virginity of Mary on, on one word. And you think, wow, what, what, is, what is the point of that? Mary was a very godly woman, wasn't she? She was a very godly young Jewish woman who was willing to be a servant to the cause of, of the Messiah coming into the world. But you see things like that. Watch out for groups that key in on one phrase or one little passage here, and they build you know, huge edifices of doctrine on those, that one little passage here or there. You've got to watch out for that. Okay. All right, point number 10. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. Okay, so how do we judge whether something is true or false? You, you take it to the Word of God. You take it to Scripture. And God expects every individual believer to be able to read Scripture and understand it for themselves. Okay, and that's one thing that the Protestant Reformation um, really recovered, is that I as an individual, you as an individual, are responsible for what you believe. Now, teachers in the church, like, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor and there's elders, and I've had pastors and elders in my life, have helped me a lot have really been great at helping me understand scripture. But at the end of the day, I'm the one that has to read it and understand it. And I, I can ask them questions, but as Martin Luther said, every Christian does their own believing and their own dying. Okay. So at the end of the day, I am responsible for what I believe. And, and I remember learning um, just through my own study of scripture and just studying church history and, and theology. Uh, it's a sin to misinterpret scripture. If I read something and I don't understand it right, I'm sinning against God. And it's tough to, to think that, but I'm like, how am I supposed to understand everything in the Bible? Well, I'm supposed to, to devote myself to reading and studying it and trying to understand it. If I misinterpret things, which you know, no one's theology is perfect, uh, but it's a sin against God to not understand his word. So that's a, that's a big deal. Okay, so you can't just say, well, this is what I was taught my whole life, or this is what the priest said, or this is what the pastor said. Okay, if I show you something is taught in scripture, you do have to believe it. But if I don't convince you, if I don't demonstrate to you that this is what it means, then you don't have to believe it. Okay, so I'm only as good as I am faithful to God's word. 
Okay, you only follow follow your pastor or your ministers or your elders insofar as they follow scripture and follow Christ. Okay. All right, chapter two. Of God and of the Holy Trinity. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and right and most righteous will for his own glory, <clears throat> most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal, most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Okay, now there's, there's entire, you know, multi-volume treatises on each, like on those attributes that were all listed there, but do you guys have any questions about any of those? <clears throat> Without body parts or passions, do you understand what, what that's talking about? Like God, God is, has emotion and God has a feeling, but he's not like us. He, he doesn't ever like have knee jerk reactions to anything. He's not subject to anything in his own creation. Okay. And one, one of the questions I've often pitched out to people, does God ever learn anything? Does he ever acquire knowledge that he didn't have before? Never. So nothing ever surprises him. And so, but we know from scripture, God grieves Remember, God was grieved that he even created man, and he decrees that. He decrees that things would happen, that he would be grieved by it, and that he would, would do certain things in response to it. But it's not that he's sitting back watching or learning or taking in knowledge or, or anything like that. Okay? Everything that comes to pass uh, is decreed and planned by God to glorify him in some way. Okay? Don't, is it open theism that contradicts that God knows all things? Yes. Yep. You all ever heard of open theism? Open theism is actually, it's not a new idea. It's a very, very old one. Um, but it, it's resurfaced in modern times. And it, that was a big thing when I, when I was in seminary. There were a lot of open theists. So here, here's where that phrase open theist comes from. We believe, I would ask you, do you believe God knows the future in exhaustive detail? He knows everything about the future. Okay. Obviously, yes, he, he does. The open theist, so, so in other words, we think the future is settled, right? It's settled in God's mind. For the open theists, they think God doesn't know the future. And so the future is therefore open. Okay, God doesn't know the future. So God is, God is hoping certain things will take place and things will happen a certain way and maybe they will, maybe they won't. They don't believe he's all-known, correct. They think that the free actions of creatures like us are unknown to God. Now, <clears throat> so think, think about this. In the, it really, that really is, open theism is the logical outworking of Arminianism. The idea that man is autonomous and has a, a free will to act contrary to God's decree. Because, okay, if God, does God know where I'm going to go out to eat? If I go out to eat somewhere, does he know what I'm going to order? Does he know how many times I'm going to chew each bite? Does he know how many times I'm going to blink? Does he know what I'm going to think about? Yes, he knows absolutely everything. So our side of this debate has been criticizing the other side for years and years and years saying, look, if you guys are going to say that man does something God doesn't know about, then in the final analysis, you're just going to, you have to say that God doesn't know the future then. And they finally are kind of feeling that, like, yeah, that's true. If God knows the future, then the future's already settled. And it can't be anything other than he already knows what it's going to be. So that means it's already settled in his mind. And they're like, okay, fine. We'll just say he doesn't know the future then so that man can have a autonomous free will. 
Hey, now that's devastating to, to Christian theology. Like you're not even talking about classical theism anymore if you're, if you're going to say that God does not know the future in exhaustive detail. Okay, so yeah. With respect to that, then God planned before the creation of the earth mm -hmm. that his son would come to mm -hmm. redeem mankind. Mm -hmm. If that is so and God doesn't know the future, mm -hmm. he would not have planned That's right. that. He couldn't have. In fact, if y'all if y'all are really bored someday, John O'Rourke and me debated an open theist and another guy that's leaning in that direction on does God know the future? Does God have an, a, an unchangeable plan for all that comes to pass? One of the questions I asked them during the cross-examination, because listening to stuff that they did before we debated them, I asked them the question, is it possible that Jesus might not have been crucified? Because God didn't know for sure if he would be betrayed, tried, condemned, and then crucified. Is it possible that the whole plan could have failed? You know what they said? Yeah, it's possible that Jesus could have been, that they could have asked for, um, for Jesus to be released and had Barabbas crucified. And when they said that, I was kind of, I just wanted to say to the moderator, I was like, we're done. Debate's over. Like, if you, if you think that might not have happened, and it just pointed out, it's total blasphemy against God. Plus everything in the Old Testament foreshadowed this and said it was going to happen. There's but prophecies that say that. Doesn't that... The open theism also undermine the sovereignty of God and yeah. providence of totally, God? Totally. Totally. Completely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's it's hard to believe that movement has gained a little traction. It has in some evangelical churches. There's evangelical churches that will have open theist speakers come talking to them and, and you just, just kind of scratch your head like, wow. So anyway, God is not subject to anything in his creation. He, he is sovereign over all of it, and it's all, it all is planned and decreed by God to glorify himself. And that's, really, that's the only reason that anything exists is for his glory. So God is never sitting back frustrated like, man, I was really hoping they would do this or do that. Another question I've asked Open Theos before is, is it possible that Pharaoh could have decided to release the Israelites after the ninth plague and they never got to Passover? And God would have been like, I was really hoping I could get one more one more plague in there. I really wanted to do the Passover to, to foreshadow the coming of Christ. And they have to say, yeah, it's possible. It's possible that that might not have happened. But we know that that's nonsense, right? Th think about what Exodus says, the book of Exodus. God told Moses, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Okay? And so God is in control of, of all of that. All right, so there's a lot more that could be said about all these attributes. But they're, that's one of the best definitions of God um, that's ever been written by anyone as far as taking into account everything in Scripture because he is most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, but he's also just and, and terrible in his judgments too. Okay, All right, point number two. Now we get into um, God as kind of the foundation of everything else. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself, all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. 
He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. Okay, so it's basically saying, you know, the, the being that we have, the fact that there are atoms that are configured, you know, hundreds of trillions of them that make up my, my body and my soul and the chair I'm sitting on, it exists only because God created it. Uh, I exist only because God created me. You exist only because God created you. And he sustained your existence moment by moment. And he is the sovereign king over all. And he is allowed to require of us whatever he wants. And a lot of people are like, well, I don't like that. I don't, I don't like I had someone uh, tell me once, I could never worship a God like that. And I, my response was, yeah, and apart from his grace, you never will. Apart from him uh, showing you mercy, you never will either. And you'll always be in rebellion against him. But... You need to repent. You need to come to Christ. You need to believe. Okay? So God has all being, all life in and of himself. And he's not dependent on anything. You know, think about everything that you and I depend on. If my heart stops, I'm going to die. If I don't get air for just a few minutes, I'm going to die. Okay, God is not dependent on anything. He, he is the, the source of all life and being. Okay? And it's really, the, the, the doctrine of creation is one of the most astounding things you could ever even consider. And that's what's next here in uh, or excuse me, after God's decree is the, the doctrine of creation. God made everything out of nothing. And I remember really struggling to get Paul to understand that when he was a kid. Oh my gosh, that kid would keep me up forever. I don't understand that. How can, like, it had to be God with some black stuff. And then he made everything out of that. I said, no, Paul, there was nothing else there. There, there was God and nothing else. And then he would just plug his ears and say, no, it was God and black stuff, God and black stuff. I'm like, no, there is no black stuff. There's nothing. God calls everything into being out of nothing, and then he sustains its moment-by-moment moment existence. And you think, you know, uh, blasphemers and God-haters and rebel sinners, you know, God is holding the very atoms in their tongue together while they're flapping their blasphemy at him. And you think, you know, it's pretty, pretty remarkable God allows us to, to live in rebellion against him until he graciously saves us and shows these things to us. And then, you know, that humbles us, and we recognize... Um, God is, is gracious and loving and, and has no reason to be towards us because of how rotten we are. So, Okay, point number three. Here we get the, the doctrine of the Trinity kind of spelled out in greater detail. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Okay? Now, I remember the first time I ever read that, like, I don't understand, like, the Father is of none. The Son is, he's, he's neither begotten nor proceeding, but the Son is begotten, but it's an eternal, it's an eternal begottenness, and the Holy Ghost is proceeding from the Father and the Son, meaning the Father and the Son send the Spirit into the world after the um, death of Christ at Pentecost and the spirit comes into the world in a more intensified way. The reason they're saying that is that's all scripture allows us to say. That's all that we're allowed to say. This is, this is as far as God has revealed himself to us. There are three persons within the, the nature of the one true God. Okay. There's one being and the three persons share that undivided being. Uh, but each one of them is fully God. And I don't fully fully comprehend all of that but i do know that that is what scripture teaches there's no question about it because god the father is said to be the creator god the son is said to be the creator god the holy spirit is the creator 
all three of them are worshipped. All three of them are given divine titles in Scripture. And so the early church had to deal with this, and they, they could see, okay, we're monotheists, right? What is a monotheist? Worship. Only one God exists. I mean, it's one of the clearest teachings in the Old Testament. There's only one God. And yet we see there are three distinct persons. Even in the Psalms, in Psalm 2, all three persons are talking to each other in that Psalm. And you read that and think, okay, so there's, there's three... One of the terms that the early church used was there are three subsistences. There are three seats of consciousness within the nature of the one true God. And they, they're distinct, but they share the one undivided being that is God. And people have asked me all the time, like, so what is God going to look like when we get to heaven? And my response is, I have no idea. But I do know that Jesus, we will see Jesus uh, in his human nature. Because he'll be permanently joined to that human nature for the rest of eternity. That's the only reason we can go to heaven. Is because he is our as our federal representative, as our covenant representative, you know, has to have that human nature having achieved for us what we have to have to be in heaven. Okay. Is that all clear? Everybody got it? Good. Okay. I know that's, that's difficult, but you see it all the way through scripture. I mean, you think about how does God identify himself to Moses in the burning bush? Exodus 3.14. Moses says, what should I say to the children of Israel if they ask who sent me? What's his name? I am. I am. What did Jesus say in John chapter 8 to his enemies at the Peace of Tabernacles? I am. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. What did they do in the very next verse? They wanted to uh, stone him. They wanted to stone him. That's right. They knew exactly what he just said. He just claimed to be the voice from the burning bush. And you think, wow. He also called God my father, making himself equal with God, mm-hmm. it says in John chapter 5. And all the way through the rest of the, the letters of the New Testament, you see the... the what the theologians call the triadic formula, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You always see the three together at Jesus' baptism, who speaks from heaven, God the Father, and then who descends upon him like a dove, Holy Spirit. You see the, the Trinity right there. Um, we're baptized, when someone is baptized, they're not baptized into the names, but into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so you see one God and three persons. And we could spend the next two months going through all the texts of Scripture that address all of this. But the, the doctrine of Trinity is one of the most glorious and mysterious and, and um, astounding truths that God has revealed to man. It has no parallels of any kind to any of man's religions. None. There is nothing even remotely similar to it in Egyptian uh, mythology, Greek and Roman mythology. In fact, all the gods of man's religions look a lot like what? What do they all look like and act like? Uh, Judaism, or um... think think about all all the gods of man's religions are a lot like us, aren't they? They envy each other, they kill each other, they they do foolish things, they they lust and covet and scheme. Okay, Man, man's religions, their gods always look like us. Whereas God, I mean, who? That's one of the arguments for the inspiration of Scripture. Who would think of, think of a God, one God who exists eternally as three persons, who is righteous and sovereign over all? Man has no say in his eternal destiny whatsoever. Only God would tell us that. Okay? The rest of man's religions, they're all the same. Man is the king. Man is sovereign. Man is the one who determines everything. Okay? okay, so there's a lot more, obviously, that could be said about God, but that's the basic biblical doctrine of God. Okay, chapter 3 of God's eternal decree or plan. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures 
nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Excuse me. Now, what that's saying is that everything that comes to pass is, is part of God's plan. And that's, that's difficult because of all the tragedy, the evil, and the, the hard things that, that have happened in our own lives and in human history. But <clears throat> think about, um, you guys, were you guys even alive when September 11th happened? <laughs> 2001? Um, do you guys remember, remember that when that happened? How, how horrifying? And everybody was asking, you know, where's God? Where's God when, you know, jetliners get hijacked and flown into buildings and thousands of innocent people? And I remember some really good responses coming from really good Christian theologians is, why did you all fail to thank God for every day that didn't happen? How come you're only, you're only interested in where God is on the days that bad things happen? What about all the days that you had fresh food to eat and had a nice place to sleep and God has poured blessing after blessing after blessing? How come we only think about God when something goes wrong? Okay, so always remember that. Um, remember when Jesus was confronted with... Um, the Jews were telling him about uh, the blood that Pilate had mingled from their sacrifices with some Jewish people that he killed. And then Jesus also tells them about, you know, what about the 18 people that that tower in Siloam fell upon? Remember that, that story? And Jesus says to them, do you think that they were worse than any of you? And then he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He interpreted what seemingly random events like that to be wake-up calls to the living. So remember the tsunami in Southeast Asia? That was 2004. Were you guys alive then? <laughs> you were one year old then? <laughs> yeah, the tsunami in Southeast Asia, that was one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen. That was when YouTube first came onto the scene, and there was just so many videos of this. There was like a, a nine-point earthquake that happened off the coast of Sumatra there in Southeast Asia, and over 250,000 people were killed by that tsunami. And it was, it was just so overwhelming to think of all those people just on the beach and hanging out and having a good time and boom next thing you know you know they're all gone and people people ask then too like what where's god when something like that happens and the, the thing is god does things like that to wake people up the survivors need to realize your life you could lose your life any moment you know what we, we watched all those videos when my kids were really little and i remember them saying to me my little kids at the time they were like wow I'm so glad we live in Ohio where God can't do things like that to us. <laughs> like, you think you're safe in Ohio? Uh, there could, we could be sitting on a fault line and not know it, and tomorrow this whole house could disappear into the ground. You, you have no idea. The thing is, you need to get right with God today. So many people put stuff off, and they, they procrastinate, and I'll do this later. You know, when I'm done having my fun, I'll, I'll repent later, and we can't do that. Okay. So God's not the author of sin, and he doesn't uh, take away the, the, uh, the contingency or liberty of second causes. You guys know what he means by second causes? Um, I've read, I haven't completely read the whole thing, but is this where um, R.C. Sproul in his Truths We Confess, he talks about where he has, he, there are times he uses his restraining hand mm -hmm. to do things, and then there are times that he keeps his hand away to let sinful man yes. continue in their Exactly society. right. That's exactly right. Sometimes God works as a primary cause. Mm -hmm. He does things directly. Like think about the parting of the Red Sea. That's God direct his hand is the one you know pushing the water back and dries out the land and God that's a God acting as a primary cause. Um, when Jesus was crucified, 
that's not God acting as a primary cause. He's not the one doing it. Those people, the Romans and the, the Jewish leaders, they're the second causes, but they're still carrying out God's ultimate plan, yeah. but they're acting in, according, in accordance with their own nature and their own desires. Okay, so that's, that's the difference. Sometimes God works as a primary cause and does things directly. Other times, second causes, things that are not God, but, but people acting according to their own choices and their own desires that are sinful and evil are still carrying out God's plan. Another example of that is Joseph's being sold into slavery. Remember what Joseph told his brothers after Jacob dies at the very end? Because they're afraid he's going to get back at us for, for what we did to him. And he said, no, what you guys meant for evil, God meant for good. Okay, so there were Joseph's brothers, when they sold him into slavery, was that sin? Yes. yes. Will God hold them accountable for it? Yes. yes. Was it also according to his sovereign decree and plan? Yes. Yep. But I mean, even... Um... When she, is it Pilate that he said you would have no control over me apart from unless that? it were given to you from yeah. above yeah. I, think that, I think that's one of the reasons Pilate was so scared He's like no one had ever said anything like that to him before but it didn't matter what, what Pilate did was determined and decreed by God at the, end, at the end of it even though Pilate's still responsible for it yeah. so. okay alright point number two although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or is that which would come to pass upon such conditions okay i have another another cool heresy to tell you about y'all ever heard of middle knowledge or molinism okay that's another that's a a roman catholic invention that comes after the reformation and y'all ever heard of the jesuits and like Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, he, he tasked one of his men, come up, with, come up with a teaching that will prevent the heretics, that would be us, from so emphasizing God's sovereignty that it doesn't take away man's free will anymore. Come up with something. And so middle knowledge is the idea that God's brain is like a supercomputer, and he just runs billions and billions of scenarios through his mind about what will happen, what free creatures will do in certain situations. And then when he gets the one that's closest to what he wants, he'll pick that one. Okay, and that's what this is denying. Uh-huh. See, listen to it again. Although God knows whatsoever may or can, or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future. Okay? So God's brain is not like a supercomputer running a billion scenarios through there and then going, okay, that's the one that's closest to what I want, so I'm going to go with that one. That's not the way God's plan works. And once again, God is not subject to his creatures. He's not subject to us. He's the one who's sovereign over us. Okay, point uh, three. By the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life and others foreordained to everlasting death. Okay. You guys know there's, there's one phrase of a verse we know that there are elect angels. And it's, uh, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 6 where uh, Paul speaks of the elect angels. So we, know, we don't really know how angels fell. Have you ever wondered about that? Like what happened with angels? Because we know Satan was already fallen in the Garden of Eden, right? We're not really given, yeah, we're not really given a whole lot of information about like what what the plan was for angels, but we know that some are elect and, and others are not. Apparently, there's no plan of redemption for the, the demons because they will be cast into the lake of fire with, with Satan and, and with um, those that didn't believe in Christ. Um, but So there are elect angels and there are elect human beings too. Okay. 
All right, uh, point number four. These angels and men, thus predestinated and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Okay, so the number of God's elect people that will go to heaven when they die, it's either an odd or an even number, right? Okay, and it can't be anything other than than what God has determined that, that it will be. Okay, and notice they say they are particularly and unchangeably designed. Okay, that's to do away with the Arminians. The Arminians said, well, God, God doesn't elect people. He doesn't elect individuals. He elects Christ. And then by our free will, we get into Christ and we become elect. The problem is the scriptures don't, don't say that. In fact, look at Ephesians chapter one in your Bible, if you would, please. Ephesians chapter 1. Long ago, when I first was really starting to understand scripture, I had a guy try this on me, and I I wasn't quite sure how to respond to him. But this passage denies what he was saying, because Jesus is not the one who is chosen. Okay, It's us who is chosen. You see verse um, 3, Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Okay, so you all know how to diagram sentences in English, right? He chose, what is the direct object of chose? In verse four. I'm sorry? Us. Okay, he didn't choose Christ, he chose us. And I remember just pointing out to that fellow, you're just playing wrong about that. He didn't choose Christ, and then by our free will, we get into Christ. It says he chose us. He chose his people. Okay, so that's why you'll hear, you'll hear me emphasize this in my preaching ministry. God elects individually by name the people he's going to save. He doesn't elect a category or a class. He elects individuals. Okay? All right. How, how would that day deal with if even Ephesians 2, 5, if we were dead in our sins and transgressions. They, they have an invented doctrine called the doctrine of prevenient grace, which, which states that, okay, yeah, you're right. The Bible does teach that we're dead in sin, and the Bible teaches that man is not able to come to Christ. He's not able to understand the things of God. He's not able, not able, not able. So God has this, like, half, half grace that he smears like peanut butter over the whole human race, and it gets us out of that dead condition so that we can use our free will to choose. The problem is, you have no texts. Nothing. There is nothing in scripture that teaches that. So they'll acknowledge, yeah, you're right, it does say we're dead in sin. Yeah, you're right, it says man's not able. And Jesus said, John 6, 44, no one is able to come to me. Okay, so God does a partial work of grace on the whole human race so that they can come to him. And there's no texts. Nothing. Nothing. And scripture teaches that. It's just, it's just a desperate attempt to, um, to prop up this idol of free will. That's really what it is. It's just desperation. So, Okay. Um, next point there, number uh, five. Those of mankind that are predestinated unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and unchangeable purpose, his immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ under ever, unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them, 
or any other thing in the creature as conditions or causes moving him there unto. You, you know why they put that in there like that? What I just said, or anything else, because everything they said there, um, without any foresight of faith, that's a shot of the Arminians. The Arminians were saying, God looks down the corridor of time and sees who will believe, and then he predestinates them. So they say, without foresight of faith, others were saying, well, God sees who will do good works, and then he chooses them. So they said, no, it's not because of foresight of faith or good works, or perseverance in faith or good works, but then they add, or anything else, in case future generations come up with other things that God might look down the corridor of time and see. They're trying to point out, it's entirely gracious. Like, I want to say, I used to think I was a Christian because I was, I was smarter than people. I was better. I, I was more spiritually attuned or, or something. Because I grew up with, with kids that never came to Christ. I went to youth group, went to church my whole life in the same church there, starting at age seven until I uh, got out of college. And there were a number of kids I went to, to church with that they didn't come to Christ. And I just thought, I thought, I'm, I, I must be better. Because they heard the same sermons I did, and they heard the same messages I heard. Why didn't they believe? And then coming to terms with the, with the reality later, no, it was because God showed me mercy. God could have left me in my sins too. And, and he didn't. And so it's entirely gracious. The reason I'm a Christian is because God wanted to have mercy on me. And he had no reason to do that. And he, he really should have left me in my sins and just let me go my own way and do whatever I wanted to do. But I'm awfully thankful that he didn't do that. Because he could have done that. He could have just said, you know what? You really are rotten. And I'm just going to let you go and, and, um, and be sinful and evil. But I'm very, very thankful he didn't do that. Okay. Um, Yeah, all to the praise of his glorious grace. I'm actually going to quote that this morning in my sermon too. Point number five there. Okay, point six. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so he hath by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto. Okay, so think about that. That's a very important sentence. Why do we do evangelism? If God's already determined who he's going to save, why do evangelism? Because he's commands us to but it's also that's part of how he brings his elect to faith in Christ it's actually a huge motivator <laughs> to do evangelism like I, I used to be terrified of trying to talk to people about the gospel like man I'm going to get this wrong I, they're going to try to kill me or something but now it's God's totally sovereign Lord bring us to some divine appointments and bless it you know God is the one who, who does it okay <clears throat> wherefore they who are decreed being fallen in Adam are redeemed by are elected being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his spirit working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. Okay, so in closing, let's look at one Bible passage. I want you guys to see this. Look at Acts chapter 13. Acts 13, verse 48 for a really good example of this. Acts 13, verse 48. And I love how when Luke is writing Acts here, he just kind of puts this in there as a throwaway, like, well, of course. I mean, look at verse 48. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. See how clear that is? Who, who were the ones that believed there? The ones that God had appointed to eternal life. Okay. Now, it might be the case that we hear the gospel a lot or we tell it to other people a lot and they don't believe it for a long time. I always think of my dad. You know, my dad, um, 
did not become a Christian until he was 32 years old. But he heard the gospel, you know, probably 10,000 times. And like the 10,000th time, God finally broke through and, and saved him. So it's not like if you share the gospel with someone and they don't believe, okay, well, they must not be elect. No, but it might just not be God's time for them yet to be born again and, and effectually called. So you persevere with people um, until, until they're gone, until they die. There's always hope for them. So we, we never give up on, on anyone. Okay, guys, have any questions? Is that all clear? I know that's a lot. That's like very. Wait, drinking from a fire hydrant. Okay, well let's let's. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for uh, revealing yourself to us in Holy Scripture. May our hearts rejoice in your grace and goodness and your sovereign decree, plan, and providence. And we pray you would uh, stir our hearts to to sing out to this day to focus closely on the text of scripture and to be to be encouraged to be built up to be sanctified by what it says i pray all this in jesus's name amen